If you want to make your way on back to your seats, we're going to get started. up your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48 this morning. If you don't have one with you, there are some back by the door over there. You can always feel free to grab one of those on your way in. You can just take it with you on your way out if you want. We'll restock if we need to. How many, raise your hand if you've ever climbed a mountain. Awesome. 17 of you are going to understand what I'm about to talk about. If you're one of them. You're in the in crowd. All right. If, if you've ever climbed uh, a mountain, you know, or you've experienced it, there are like two points uh, in that hike, in that journey, where you get these kind of breathtaking, almost arresting moments. The first is when you get out above the tree line. So you, you've been hiking through the trees for a while. You get up high enough in altitude that uh, plant life struggles to grow, and you kind of bust out over the top of that, and you get your first real view of where you are and what all is around you. And then obviously the second is if you make it all the way to the summit, and obviously you get up there and, and you get the best view, you get the payoff for all of your hard work. This morning, our passage is kind of like breaking up over the tree line. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and this passage is, is kind of like we've been slogging our way through the trees a little bit on these passages where Jesus is saying, you've, got to, you've heard it said this, but I say this. We're about to kind of bust up over the tree line here and get a really good view of what in the world all of this actually means. And so you can kind of think about where we've been this way. The first 16 verses really laid the foundation. It was like kind of getting all your gear in the bag while you're back at home. And Jesus is saying that, look, this is important for two reasons. Number one, I'm speaking to my followers. So you are a follower of Jesus, and that's why this matters. Number two, the foundation of being a follower of Jesus, of being a disciple of Christ, is that you've got this humility before the Lord. You realize that you've got nothing of your own to offer spiritually, and you are relying completely and totally on him for any sort of righteousness. And that really sets the foundation. Then there's this kind of four-verse chunk where Jesus says, and if you're one of my followers, you've actually got to be more righteous than a Pharisee or a scribe, which would have totally blown people away at the time because who could possibly be more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee? Jesus says that that comes from not trying to obey the law all on your own. It doesn't come from just writing it off and casting it off and saying the law doesn't matter. No, righteousness comes from trusting in his fulfilling work of the law, that Jesus came and he lived the law perfectly and then he died and you lean into that and you trust in that and that's what gives you this righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees and that if you live that way, you'll be like salt and light in the universe. And then he gives us these six illustrations of that. The first is about anger, and he says you should have a heart of peace, which should be radically different than the rest of the world. Then he talks about adultery and divorce, and he says that you should have this longing inside of you for perfect purity, and that will make you stand out like salt and light from everybody else. And then last week we talked about honesty and 
keeping your word. And he says, if you're marked by this simple kind of honesty, that's going to make you stand out more than anybody else. And today we get to the last two. It's about retaliation and loving your enemies. And Jesus is going to really drive home the point here. And what makes this so incredible, what gives us kind of this above the tree line first view here, is that Jesus, the rest of Jesus' life is going to ground this principle, this passage in reality. And you'll see it played out over the next 30 or the next three years of his life throughout his ministry up to his death. And so that's what makes this so incredible. I'm going to begin reading in, in uh, Matthew 5:38 down through the end of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go 1 mile, go with him 2 miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." We've got two illustrations here that prove one point. The first kind of establishes it, and then the second pushes it one step further. So that's what we're going to see this morning. And here is the main takeaway, that the letter of the law says to seek equal justice, but the heart of the Father says to remember and model unthinkable grace. This, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is what's known as the lex talionis. It's found all throughout ancient cultures, and its entire purpose was to limit, in a judicial sense, retribution, to limit personal vengeance. That if someone knocked your eye out or caused you to go blind, you could not seek more than that from them. If they knocked out one of your tooth, or one of your tooths, one of your teeth, you don't knock out all of their tooths. You just knock out one. It is within human nature to want to get back more than what was taken from us. When I was in high school, I had a group of friends, and and we got bogged down in like a year and a half long uh, battle of kind of pranking each other. And it really started one day when a friend of mine and I were driving in his truck down 291, and we saw an old kind of halfway cracked abandoned toilet on the side of the road. And being 17 years old, we thought to ourselves, this is fantastic. So we loaded it into the back of the truck, And we began this process of leaving it on people's yards. In the middle of the night, we would drive up, dump the toilet onto their front lawn, and then drive off. And it became maddeningly frustrating when the toilet appeared on your yard. And you signed the lid so that you could, like, track the progress. But at a certain point, that became not enough. So we started to decorate the toilet. You would add something to it before you dropped it onto someone else's yard. Well, then the bowl and the tank separated, and so you could, now you could get two people. You could put the bowl somewhere and the tank somewhere, but then somewhere along the line, a Christmas, an artificial Christmas tree got involved, and so you would decorate the Christmas tree with the toilet on the yard, and pretty soon we're looking for, like, couches and televisions, and, like, <laughs> can we set up an entire living room situation in somebody's front yard? It was never enough to just do the equal thing. We always wanted to do a little bit more. That's what Lex Talionis was designed to curb. 
that there's this sinful, broken, innate sense in people that if someone knocks over my mailbox, I'm throwing a rock through their window. And when someone has thrown the rock through my window, I'm just going to burn down their entire house. And then they say, well, you burned down my house and you hurt my dog. I'm coming after your family. And pretty soon you've set up a situation that's like the Hatfields and the McCoys or the Montagues and the Capulets and your families just hate each other and you can't do any worse because you've taken it to the extreme. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was put in place so that the court system could limit that. Well, somewhere along the line within the Jewish Israelite community, that was taken out of the legislative judicial process and just put into the hands of people. And so you just had these vigilantes running around trying to get back what was taken from them, in a sense. And Jesus says that is not how this is supposed to work. What he's saying is that in matters of personal relationship, we are not to seek that kind of justice. This isn't talking about state or governmental or judicial practice. This is talking about you and your personal relationships. When someone wrongs you as a follower of Jesus, you are not to seek personal retaliation. He's calling for this total abandonment of the desire for personal vengeance, which goes against who we are. He gives these three illustrations of this. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. To get slapped on the right cheek was like the height of insult at the time. Most people are right-handed, so if I were going to slap someone on the right cheek, I've got to backhand slap them. It was a huge insult. Jesus says, if somebody does that to you, you do not insult back. You turn the other cheek. Then he goes on and he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, go ahead and give them your cloak as well. You couldn't be sued for your cloak. It was like the outer garment that a person wore at the time. The reason being is that it was a matter of uh, like personal warmth and protection. You slept with it. You used it. And so you couldn't be, have that taken from you. Jesus says if someone sues you and tries to take your tunic, go ahead and give them the cloak as well. Don't just try to get back from them whatever you can. Go, ahead, go one step further. Give them the cloak also. He says if someone asks you to go a mile, you go two with them. At the time, there was this a permissible practice for a Roman soldier that when he walked up to a person, he could ask you to carry his stuff for a mile, literally actually a thousand steps. And for the Israelite people who are uh, living under Roman rule, when a Roman soldier would walk up and say, carry my stuff for a mile, it's just frustratingly annoying. These people are oppressing us. We don't appreciate their rule over us. And now I've got to carry this guy's stuff for a mile. You actually couldn't say no. Jesus says, go two miles, go 2,000 steps with them. He says, if somebody has legitimate need and they ask you to borrow money, give to them. It just challenges our personal sense of entitlement. I worked for this. This is mine. I deserve this. Jesus says, if there's somebody who really needs something and they ask you, you give. Jesus is saying that in your personal relationships, you do not seek equal justice. Instead, you show mercy. Mercy means not giving someone what they deserve. Someone slaps you backhanded on the right cheek, they probably deserve to get hit back. Jesus says you don't do it. Somebody takes you to court and sues you, everything within you says, I want to get back from them. Jesus says you don't do it. You show mercy. It requires that you lay down your sense of yourself, your desire to assert your personal rights and to to get retaliation, to get vengeance, and you put someone else above yourself. 
In the grand scheme of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying that the heart of a follower of Jesus before the Lord plays itself out in the way that you relate to people. You're not just trying to get back what you think you deserve. But in the next passage, he pushes that one step further. And he says, not only should we not seek our personal retaliation from others, but a follower of Jesus should actually give to those who take from them. The Pharisees had taken this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they had constructed this system where it only applied to other Israelites. And so as long as you were one of God's chosen people, then absolutely, you knock out my tooth, I'm only taking one of yours. But if you were outside the Israelite people and they knocked out one of your teeth, go ahead and beat them senseless. It just doesn't matter. And Jesus says, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you to love your enemy, to actually pray for those who persecute you. In one sentence, Jesus crushes their traditional way of thinking. That's what he's been doing throughout this passage. This idea of loving your enemies carries this connotation of a generous, warm, a costly self-sacrifice on behalf of another person for their good. And we get mixed up with this in our culture today because love is primarily an emotion for us, like a warm, fuzzy feeling for us. The kind of love that the Bible is talking about, that Jesus is talking about here, isn't primarily a matter of emotion. It's an attitude that leads to action. That's the kind of love Jesus is talking about. It's a state of your heart. In Jesus' day, the standard of love was limited. It only extended to certain people. But he's saying that someone who's a disciple of Christ, who has a heart that is spiritually bankrupt before the Father, that's been radically changed by him, they want something more than limited love. They long to show something greater than limited love. So he goes to the next step. He says, pray for those who persecute you. This is step one in what loving your enemies would look like. And it doesn't mean that we pray, Lord, fix them. Bless their soul. They just need to be better. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about understanding that the person who has wronged you, be they another Israelite or someone outside for us, be they a believer or someone who's not a believer, we've got to understand that that person has a soul and that soul matters. If they're a fellow believer and their sin or their brokenness or something has happened in their relationship with you and it has caused you pain, we should be praying for that person. Not in a condescending way, not in some way like I'm better than them, but in a genuine sense. We should be praying for them. If there's someone who's not a believer and their sinfulness and brokenness has bumped into you in some way and caused you pain or taken something from you, then we ought to be praying for them because more than anything else, we should want their soul to find rest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, to find salvation in him, to spend eternity with him. That requires seeing that the person who hurts you is more than just someone to get something back from. They're someone with a soul, and their soul and their heart matters. It should matter to us as much as it matters to God. The practice of seeing the the eternal reality of your enemy and praying for them changes you. It changes your attitude toward them. It changes your desire to get something back from them. And ultimately, 
It makes us look like our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. A child resembles their parents. If you've got kids, they probably look like you physically. They probably reflect you in terms of temperament and intellect and interests and those kinds of things. To a degree. Not perfectly, but to a degree. The Bible tells us that the primary defining characteristic of who God is is that he is love. Not that he does love or not that he is loving sometimes, but that he is love. And if one thing is going to rub off from father to child, it's going to be this sense of love. And that's going to play itself out in our relationships with people. Even when those individuals cause us pain, even when their sinfulness or brokenness hurts us, even when they've taken something from us that we feel like we have a right to get back. You see, a follower of Jesus is to give to those who take from them. We see that more clearly in the work of Jesus Christ than in anything else. The Bible's clear that from the first sin in the garden all the way through the entire New Testament on up to today, through Jesus' coming back, that the price for sin, the wage of sin, is death. That is what we deserve. Raise your hand if you've sinned before. Perfect. Put your hand down. Raise your hand if you're alive. Some people didn't raise their hands, and that's weird. God, in his mercy, has not tried to take back from us what we have taken from him. He has not tried to get back from us, to to dole out to us what we deserve. He has shown us incredible mercy. If you have sinned one time and you're still sitting here alive, which all of you are, regardless of whether or not you raise your hand, then he has been incredibly merciful to you. But he hasn't just shown you mercy. He's gone a step further, which is what he's calling us as his followers to do, and he has shown grace. If mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, then grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. He has given to those of us who have only ever taken from him. He gave in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and in his life and death and work on the cross. There's no greater sacrificial gift that's ever been given. There's no greater sacrificial gift that will ever be given than in the fact that when you were in the midst of your sin, God sent his son to die and pay the price for our sins so that we would no longer be marked by our sin but might find the answer for our sin. In the midst of all of our taking, God did not seek to take back. Instead, he gave. And as followers of Christ, we are to do the same. That kind of grace is unthinkable. That is the heart of the Father. And it changes everything. It changed everything for you in terms of your eternal position before the Lord. And as you live it out in real life, it has the power to change everything for those who don't know Christ yet. I want to give you two very brief biblical examples of this. While Jesus is on the cross, after having lived a perfect life and being accused of a a false crime and sentenced to death, he's hanging there on the cross and he's being spit at and and, uh, insulted. And there are these guards standing there and they've actually kind of... uh, like cast lots for his clothing after he's dead and whatnot. And as he's dying, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
The very people who beat him, who spit on him, who are insulting him, who are just waiting for him to die so that they can have his clothes. He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And after he dies and, and, and the sky goes dark and the curtain in the temple is ripped in two, do you know what the, or what the guard says there who's standing at the cross? He says, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' almost confusing amount of grace on the cross leads that guard to say, this, this was the Son of God. Not too long later, Paul is in the midst of spreading the gospel, and he gets put in jail in Philippi along with some other people. And while he's there, there's this sequence of events that plays out whereby the jail is basically sprung open in the middle of the night for him to be able to walk out. And this Philippian jailer walks in and sees what's there uh, before him that all the prisoners have likely escaped and he draws his sword because he's going to kill himself. Because when his commander finds out that all the prisoners are gone, that's what's going to happen anyway. He's going to be put to death. So he draws his sword and he's getting ready to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. Despite having the opportunity to make a break for it, to probably get back from the jailer who has beaten him and put him in chains and held him in there and probably not been super friendly. Paul instead has chosen to stay in the cell and keep everyone else there. Do you know what ends up happening to that jailer later on in that passage in Acts? Paul actually goes to his house and he baptizes that jailer and his entire family. There was something about the grace that Paul showed in that jail cell that led that jailer to say, I need to figure out what's going on here. It's unthinkable. It's almost confusing. This passage here in Matthew chapter 5 said that God causes the sun to rise on both the evil and the good, that he sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you've put your faith in Jesus, at one time you were the evil You were the unjust, and God kept allowing the sun to rise on your life. He kept allowing you to live long enough that you might hear the gospel and be able to put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ. If you've not ever placed your faith in Christ and what he did for you on the cross, the sun came up today. You woke up and are breathing, and there's this inherent goodness and grace there. And the unthinkable part is that despite all of your sin, you can be forgiven and made clean before the Lord. That kind of grace is unthinkable. We can't completely understand it. We just know that we've been the recipient of it. Praise the Lord. And it ought to lead us into this passionate worship of the God who so graciously and mercilessly are mercifully sent his son on our behalf. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to spend some time in worship. And as, as the band comes up, I, I want Yeah, amen, huh? Hey, uh, normally we'd be done here, but I want you to grab a seat. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press this one step further. It's likely that you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, sure, Jesus can live that kind of lifestyle. Well, because he was God. And Paul is like half a step lower, the greatest Christian that ever walked the face of the planet. But I want to remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is for normal, everyday followers of Jesus. 
Which means that what Jesus is saying here is not impossible. He wouldn't say it if it were impossible. But it is possible for every follower of Jesus Christ to live in such a way that they display this kind of love and grace to the people that are around them. So I want to to finish today by grounding this in two examples, real life. The first comes from a video that you've maybe seen on the internet over the last 12 days or so. It's a man by the name of Monty Williams. He's speaking at the funeral of his wife, Ingrid, who has just died uh, in a car accident. So watch about a minute of this. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. That in, it, in itself is pretty powerful, that someone just days after losing their wife in a, in a car accident could stand up there and make that sort of statement. Uh, in fact, that's so powerful. The, view, the video has been viewed roughly 11 million times as of last night, and that was just that version. There are tons of those out there, varying lengths uh, of his eulogy. Most people don't know the full uh, circumstances that surrounded the accident. Monty Williams' wife, Ingrid, was driving with three of their children in, a, uh, in their vehicle on a road very similar to like Liberty Drive out here. The speed limit was like 40 miles per hour. And a white SUV crossed over the center line and struck them head on, traveling 95 miles per hour. <coughs> over 50 miles per hour over the speed limit. Both drivers were killed immediately, but miraculously, three of his daughters survived. That he could stand up there after having something taken from him that he is not ever going to get back and say, not only do I forgive that family, but I, we should be praying for them. That's almost a confusing amount of grace that someone could stand there and say that. It's unthinkable. But obviously it struck a chord with 11 million people who have viewed that video. Believers, non-believers, who are seeing that kind of grace lived out and thinking to themselves, what in the world empowers someone to do that? Well, if you watch the other seven minutes of that eulogy, he makes it very clear that that kind of grace comes only from remembering and modeling the work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. The second example that Uh, I want to give is maybe one that you remember from 2006. In October of 2006, there was a shooting at a one-room Amish schoolhouse in a town called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. A man named Charles Roberts backed his white pickup truck up to that school at about 10.35 in the morning. He got out of the truck and he went inside and he told the boys in the schoolroom that if they did not go out to the truck and unload what was in the bed of the truck, that he would kill them. So they went outside and they actually carried in the guns and weapons that 
Charles Roberts would use just minutes later. And at 11.07, he dismissed all of the boys and the adult women teachers that were in the room, and he lined up 11 young girls along the chalkboard, and he opened fire. Five of them died. Three others were severely injured. And as uh, state troopers and SWAT team members rushed into the building, he turned the gun on himself, and he shot himself. In the moments following that incident, you could hear members of the Amish community in interviews saying things like, we cannot think evil of this man. We must remember that he was a husband and a father and a son and that he has a soul and that right now he stands before a just God. About 30 members of that Amish community showed up to Charles Roberts' funeral. They went so far as to set up a trust fund so that his children could get a college education later. His wife, Marie, was the only non-Amish person invited to the funeral of the five little girls from that community who lost their lives that day. And a few days later, she wrote an open letter which got published in newspapers all around the world and that you can still find online. And in it, she said that the, that the grace and compassion of the Amish community has changed her heart, this community, and hopefully the world. Littered throughout that story are these Amish individuals talking about the need to forgive like Christ has forgiven them. Now, hopefully nobody in this room experiences that kind of unthinkable tragedy like Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, or like Ingrid Williams experienced and that Monty stood up and talked about. But to lesser degrees, every single day, we get wronged and feel like something has been taken from us. And friends, we never look more like Jesus than when we can love in the face of that. When we can extend grace and mercy and love without condition and without limit and without qualification in the midst of that. We look more like Jesus than at any other point, and that is what it means to be salt and to be light in the universe. Jesus ultimately went to the cross to model that. And as those of us who have put our faith in him, that's what our lives ought to give testimony to. That is how we're able to shine like stars in the universe, as Paul says, as you hold out the word of life. If you've placed your faith in Christ, your heart ought to be in a place where you long to model that kind of grace and forgiveness. We're going to sing one last song. You can stand back up. We're going to sing Good, Good Father. And the reason why is because the bridge says you are perfect in all of your ways to us. You are perfect in all of your ways to us. This passage ends by saying that if you live this kind of life, then you'll be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus isn't saying that you'll be perfect in some sort of moral perfection, earn your salvation sort of way, but that you will love perfectly in a manner similar to that of his work on the cross. And that is what the world so desperately needs. Let's sing.